So, Jay, I know the Juggernaut's been a good guy now and then. Yeah, at this point, he's thoroughly in the gray zone. But what about Black Tom Cassidy? Has he ever joined the side of the Angels? Aside from doing a decent job raising Teresa? Not until very recently. Yeah, you know, Krakoa makes for strange bedfellows. And stranger chiefs of security. What?! For reasons that remain a mystery even to us, we refer to Black Tom Cassidy several times in this episode as Sean Cassidy's brother. He is not. They are cousins. We apologize for the error. I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 380 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back from space, and down to Massachusetts. Ah, yes, the two genders. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, we are back with Generation X, and I don't know what it is about this era. Like, we're still drowning in miniseries, but it feels like we don't go quite as long between episodes featuring a specific book and team. It feels like we did Gen X not too long ago. I mean, some of it, I think, is that teams have been overlapping a little more. There is some of that, yeah. And, you know, we'll have episodes where we throw a couple of annuals together, and maybe that's different books or whatever. Like, I know we just did the, somewhat recently, the Despair episode with the Gen X annual and the Juggernaut one-shot. Well, and this is the episode where we finally catch up with ourselves seven months ago and um, get, get to the opening of Daydreamers, which we did for our last winter special. Yes, and uh, no regrets on that. And also, I mean, let's be real, Daydreamers, while it does take place right after the comics we're covering today, uh, it's pretty divorced continuity-wise from them. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just fun that there's such a direct on-ramp. Yeah, exactly. So, before we talk about any specific issues, or our issues with those issues, actually, we really liked them, but still, I just like that phrase, so there you go. Let's talk about what the deal with Generation X is, for anyone who may have forgotten, or for whom this may be their first episode. Okay, so Generation X is the youngest class of Xavier-affiliated mutants, like the new New Mutants. Now that the X-Mansion in Westchester is mostly the headquarters for the X-Men, and up until very soon, X-Force, it's a little too crowded for, you know, actual students. So Generation X is based in the new Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters in Snow Valley, Massachusetts, previously the Massachusetts Academy run by Emma Frost, the telepathic white queen of the Hellfire Club. But she's no longer with the Hellfire Club. Instead, she and former X-Man Banshee are the co-headmasters of this new school. As for the students themselves... Let's see, we've got Monet Sanquois, who goes by M, has tons of superpowers, and, according to Beast in the last arc, may be autistic— In reality, her situation is a lot more complicated, but we'll get into that later. Less complicated is the awkward quasi-romance between Husk, the earnest younger sister of Cannonball, and Chamber, who is very mopey because his mutant powers blew a great big hole in his chest and face, which, I mean, you know, fair enough. Yeah, that's rough, buddy. Right? Seemingly less, but actually more complicated, is Mondo the newest member of the Class Slash team. As far as we know, he's an easygoing Semo and teenager who can merge with and absorb other matter, and the plot has mostly forgotten about him. Until now. 
Also on the team are Sink, Jubilee, and Skin. There's also a character named Penance who sort of lurks around the shadows of the school, pops up now and then, and living in a treehouse in the Arboretum slash Danger Grotto are Artie, Leech, and Franklin Richards, a trio of adorable moppets. We'll talk about all them as they come up. And that brings us to Generation X number 23, For All This. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Mitch Bird, inked by Jason Martin and Carl Story, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and, of course, Comicraft. So, Gen X obviously is a book defined, I would say, even more by its art than by its writing. Chris Bucciolo is the Generation X central creator for me, even though Scott Lobdell worked on way, way more issues. Oh, unquestionably. Yeah. But Bocello also tends to take a lot of breaks, which means we got a lot of fill-in artists. Mitch Bird here? Pretty good. Uh, There are a lot of talky and thinky panels in this issue, as there tend to be in Gen X, because Gen X is a pretty slow-paced, less superheroic book, and Bird keeps them varied and interesting, Um, and the color palette by Steve Bucciolato feels great. This is an issue that takes place during fall, specifically a little bit before Thanksgiving, just like the issue before it took place around Halloween, and the issue after it's going to take place around Christmas. I agree that Bird is fine, but honestly, I think unless you've specifically got, like, a pair of artists switching off who work in complementary styles, it almost works better to have fill-in artists who are doing something really stylistically different that doesn't invite quite as much comparison to, well, Chris Pacello, because you don't want to... No one wants to be compared to Chris Pacello. It never works out well for them. Yeah, no, that's, that's entirely reasonable. And certainly Mitch Bird does suffer by comparison, like, as almost anybody would. I mean, I guess unless you don't like Chris Pacello's art, that's the thing his art is real weird and while i know we both love it i could totally see a lot of people not because it's so strange and not realistic i mean one of the things that we know is that a lot of people can be wrong it's true it's true seen so many examples of that so yeah like uh, i was saying this issue takes place a couple days before thanksgiving and we learned from the captions that this was previously Headmaster Banshee's favorite holiday. Despite being a transplant to the U.S., he really clicked with Thanksgiving, which makes sense. I mean, he's a sentimental, earnest guy, and back in the 90s, there was still certainly some uh, critical evaluation of the toxicity of aspects of the holiday, but, you know, not as much as these days. Banshee here, though, is not fully in the spirit of the season. He is pondering his relationship with his daughter, Siren, Teresa, once again— Jay, do you want to talk about what their history is? Because it's a little weird. Minimal is what their history is. Teresa was raised by Sean's brother, Tom, better known as Black Tom Cassidy of um, Perpetual Duo with Juggernaut, well-known supervillain who hid Teresa's existence from Sean until she was until her late teens. Yeah, Sean had been off on a mission. He's been a cop. He's been a spy. He's been all sorts of things. And uh, unbeknownst to him, his wife, who died while he was gone, was pregnant. And so Sean and Teresa have a somewhat complicated, somewhat strained relationship that they're both sort of trying to develop, but that they both have a lot of regrets and complicated feelings about. Also complicated is Sean's attitude toward being the mentor for a bunch of teenagers when the one teenager he cares the most about— I think she's still a teenager? Hard to say. Anyway, the one young person he cares the most about is one he barely has a relationship with. So I like this. This is good character work. This fits him. I don't feel like they're going to that well too many times. It's it's, it's a nice bit of that soap opera that we really come to the X-Books for. And it gives him— 
a focus that balances, if not precisely, fairly well with Emma's need to redeem herself for the loss of the Hellions. Totally, yeah. So Banshee heads outside to talk to Sink, one of the students, one of the team. Sink's going to come along for Monet M to get tested for autism. Because remember, Beast diagnosed her last issue after she stops being responsive during a test and then made a very complicated uh, model castle, which I guess is what you do when you're autistic? I mean, it's what I do. Well, there you go. We talked a little bit about the handling of autism in this book, and you know, it's it's not great, but it'll turn out to not exactly be that anyway. It sort of is. It's so complicated. We're going to get to that revelation. I mean, we've talked before about how Monet isn't really Monet. She's really her two younger sisters who have merged into a body and are pretending to be her, and one of them is autistic. It's it's a whole thing. The real Monet is trapped as penance, and later on she'll be able to turn into penance. This is why we love comics, but also it's hard to explain. And the, the whole concept and and realization of autism here is handled about as well as neurodivergence and mental illness uh, historically have been in comics, which is to say, not very. Yeah, you remember early Legion? That was a whole thing. Oh, God. But as they head out, I do want to talk about the art here, because again, I do think the combination of pencil sinks and colors works a lot in this issue. The fall colors and foliage are beautiful, and they are just all through the background, all through this entire issue. I love that in comics. I love fall. Part of that, I'm sure, is that, like you, I grew up in mostly in Florida, entirely for me, mostly for you, and Florida doesn't have fall, and I am never going to get used to how cool autumn looks. And so issues like this that are just so fall-tinged the entire time, or my favorite, Uncanny Number 308, that's the one where uh, Scott and Jean get engaged around Thanksgiving in a football game and stuff. It's just, it's just so pleasant. Yeah, I mean... Fall is, late fall especially, is, is is my favorite season and probably always will be. Legit. Oh. So Monet, meanwhile, has decided that she is absolutely not going to this assessment, and to enforce this, she has smashed up all the cars. Damn it, Monet, those things are expensive, and also probably have sentimental value. One of them looked like a classic. I bet Banshee really loved it. Really? I sort of assumed they were all Emmas. Oh. That's a good point, yeah. Well, you know. She's kind of a jerk, so I feel less bad in that regard. Well, well and she has the near near infinite resources of the comic book wealthy, so she can probably replace them. <laughs> yeah, she's fine. So she, at first, is just hovering cross-legged in the air, which is an image I love, and then just flies into the sky to get away from this, this test she doesn't want to do. And speaking of cool visuals... When Banshee follows her, he does this thing like freaking Neo from the end of the first Matrix movie where he crouches down and then just rockets upward. But there are these concentric circles, I guess, of sound. I don't know. And I suppose they could be, you know, more meteorological, but that follow him and expand as he gets further away from them. And when he's talking to her in the sky while he's flying, he has those same concentric circles emanating from his face. It's very rare we see Banshee and Siren's powers depicted in all that physical of a way. Usually they're just more like kind of general wavy background effects, maybe concentric circles, but nothing so uh, so visceral as these. I want to know how Banshee can carry on a conversation while flying, given that his sonic scream is what allows him to remain airborne. I know, you'd think that like he'd be doing his whole scream thing, eee! Hey, Monet, how you doing? And he'd, be, he'd, like, fall down a little, and then, ee, and come back up. I really think that you should, and fall down a little, ee, and come back up. Go to this appointment, fall down a little. It would be great. 
Yeah, I mean that that's what he'd basically have to do, I would assume. Maybe he can maybe he's just screaming at her. Monet, I think you should go to this appointment All high pitched. Yeah. I don't know if that would make him more or less convincing. Like at the very least, I might agree to it just to get him to stop making my ears hurt. Yeah, I, I would imagine that that his powers of persuasion are somewhat aided by by volume. <laughs> See, that's the thing. I love Sean Cassidy as a character. I love Banshee so much, but his powers don't really make a lot of sense. A lot of powers don't really make a lot of sense, but I guess his his are the ones that don't make sense at the moment. <laughs> well said. So, anyway, she cries, not because of the sound, but because she's, you know, upset and she begs him to not make her go to the doctors again, since they kept testing her again and again when her when her powers first manifested. And here's the thing. That didn't happen with M. That didn't happen with M at all. So I'm kind of wondering if that was what happened to Claudette, the one of the twins who is autistic, when it first started becoming clear that she was autistic. And maybe she had been taken to doctor after doctor after doctor, and maybe that's what she's reacting to. Or... It's possible M is just lying, this fake M that we have here that is really the twins, because they don't want someone to figure out their secret. I don't know. It's ambiguous. And I think that kind of works. The latter take is definitely Emma's. She tells Sean that Monet is a threat and has been lying to them from the start. To which Sean responds, What about you, Emma? Aren't you a threat as well, then? Of course I'm a threat. Why? Did you think for a moment that I wasn't? Scott Lobdell writes a great goddamn Emma Frost. So many people give Grant Morrison credit for making Emma an interesting character, and certainly they did great work with Emma, no question there. But I gotta say, like, the first writer to really make Emma fascinating was totally Scott Lobdell, so credit where credit is due. I mean, I think we started seeing hints of, of that character much, much earlier than this. Yeah, and Chris Claremont's New Mutants, certainly. But, I mean, we just didn't get that kind of focus on Emma until after she woke up from that coma. Meanwhile, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Kentucky, I miss the Blue Ridge Mountains, although I guess those were the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. But regardless, Chamber has come along with Husk for a Guthrie family Thanksgiving, which I gotta say sounds awesome. I want to go to one of those. I bet they're chaotic and delightful. Oh, they would be wonderful, but also just so warm and friendly and loud. Oh, that sounds sounds joyous. You could probably just, like, show up and say that you were another Guthrie kid and everyone would believe you since they keep on fluctuating anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every time one of the Guthries that we've seen mostly so far, Sam or Paige, tries to talk about their siblings, like, it is inconsistent. I mean, general canon is that there are nine-ish Guthrie kids. They're, yeah, yeah, between six and twelve. Somewhere in there. Uh, speaking of art and speaking of missing the Blue Ridge Mountains, there's this wonderful big old panel of the two of them talking on this cliff over this gigantic forested valley under those purple and blue mountains. Like, damn, that... It's hard... I don't know if you can be homesick for a place you only spent six years in, but that image made me feel homesick for that area. I mean, I literally have a tattoo of a stretch of the mountains outside Asheville. So that's, that's my answer to that. <laughs> Legit. So Paige counters Jonathan's self-pity and cynicism by just genuinely reaching out emotionally. There's this great close-up panel of her hands doing so literally and another of them him pulling his back. 
he's got this mix of sadness and anger. Like, he knows he can't have a normal life. Like, a lot of his him is gone. They head back to the house, and there's there are no Guthries there. They're at church helping get stuff ready, but Chamber is convinced that they're gone because they're avoiding the freak. And I appreciate that Paige has no time for his bullshit. She's like, dude, the Guthries do not see mutants as any different, and the fact that you won't believe me about this is pretty awful of you, so what the hell? And he keeps going. He's he's decided that the reason that she's brought him back is that she wants them to be like her parents, you know, a happy, normal couple. And man, he is projecting a lot. And Paige calls bullshit pretty, pretty emphatically. In the future, I'd like you to respect my feelings for what they are, not for what you need them to mean. Meanwhile, not knowing that Chamber is away, Howard the Duck has stopped by the school to say hi. Um, alas, all he finds are the trio of Moppets. And they drag him off to see their sick friend, the Blue Lady, with Tana Niles, the first time we're fully seeing her, although she appeared initially back in number 20. And if you remember our Daydreamers episode, you'll remember that she is an alien lady who first appeared in Silver Age Thor and accompanies them on their Daydreamers Eve journey. Remember, Howard ended up randomly sort of chauffeuring Chamber and Husk while they were traveling around and they kind of became buds. Um, Howard doesn't know what he's getting into showing up in this book, but I love that he does. It's such a kind of perfect overlap. And also, I enjoy seeing... Chris Pichella's take on Howard and Tana Nile and all these other characters. Like, the art in Daydreamers was fun, but Bocello is, you know, his own kind of fun. We'll get to that a couple issues from now, because here we are at Generation X 24, Home for the Holidays. This issue is written again by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Rick Leonardi and Mitch Bird, inked by Bud LaRosa and Jason Martin, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and, of course, Comicraft. And hey, Rick Leonardi, we haven't seen him in ages. Like, he was a really common villain artist for a long time, although his art looks very different here. It's, it's him and Bird, so it could be that he's, he's deliberately um, aping Bird's style. Could be, yeah. I love the cover here. It's this maniacally villainous-looking Emma Frost in her white queen outfit behind Jubilee, Em, and Husk, who are all in action fight poses. But, like, the issue is basically a girl's sleepover with a lot of emotional conversations. I I don't know. I mean, I guess you gotta sell a comic, and maybe you don't think that would sell as well, but I don't know. I'd buy a comic with a cover that was a bunch of characters I liked looking like they were talking about important things to each other and having feelings. I mean, one of the greatest covers of New Mutants had Slumber Party written right across it. It did. Oh, man, that that's Sienkiewicz art at the beginning. Mm-hmm. God, that is... I need a poster of that. I need a door-sized poster of that. Yeah. So as we mentioned, the holiday extravaganza continues because it's Christmas Eve. Jay, what do you think about Generation X focusing so heavily on holidays as opposed to other books? I mean, I think the President's Day issue was a little bit weird. I love the Arbor Day one, though. Yeah. I don't know. I It it, it feels... It makes every issue feel a little bit like a special, which is kind of neat. Agreed, yeah. And, like, I don't know, something about doing that with this group of young characters, most of whom, like, they're not family the way the New Mutants quickly became. And so having these kind of these touchstones that, you know, affect young people so much because if nothing for no other reason than that they're going to be on an academic calendar. Mm-hmm. I like that. It like sort of gives the characters something to interact around and it really gets across the, the passage of time. Like the fact that these kids are getting older bit by bit, but are still within that annual 
academic and holiday-based cycle. It also really emphasizes kind of the uneven way that time passes at that age. Yeah, that's a really good point, just in those sort of bursts almost. Mm -hmm. So Emma has taken Husk, M, and Jubilee to M's family home in Monaco. Remember, M's family is like super rich where they live in Monaco. And I love Emma's take on Christmas Eve that opens the issue. It's the one night of the year when the entire world just stops. In those few hours before dawn, human, mutant, everyone just sort of holds their breath in sweet anticipation, waiting to see how badly they're going to be disappointed in the morning. In its own tragic way, it's kind of romantic. And then we get almost a subtle emotional version of a Danger Room cold open as we get to know each of the other characters who are here in really straightforward ways in the way they respond. Jubilee talks about how she never wants anything, because that way she won't be let down. Husk thinks that Christmas is all about family, of course. M calls Jubilee a cynic and tells her to stop being a dick by bringing up what happened with Husk and Chamber in Kentucky, because M, of course, is very perceptive. It works. And what also works, what I definitely want to talk about, is how their characters and outlooks are portrayed in the way that they've chosen to dress. I mean, the way the artists have chosen to draw them, really, but the way the characters have chosen to dress during this gathering. Emma's wearing this sort of flowing white, sexy but not skimpy outfit. It really gets across just how confident she is, but also how deliberate she is in the way she comes off. Like, this is a carefully chosen and draped outfit. Yeah, everything about Emma is is very curated and always has been, and I think that's a really fundamental element of the character. Totally. And I also love that we never really know how much of that is genuine physical care and style and stuff, and how much of it is just her telepathically manipulating people into seeing what she wants them to see. Matt, if I were Emma, I would be wearing footy pajamas at all times. Uh, I know at least sometimes in the in continuity she has been wearing super schlubby, comfy outfits and just making herself look all glamorous telepathically. Good for her. Right? And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Jubilee wearing a hoodie and bike shorts. Like, she really does deliberately project indifference because, kind of like what she was just describing verbally, she doesn't want to be vulnerable. And this is one more way for her to avoid being vulnerable by just not caring what she looks like and making that clear. Husk is in short cutoffs and a tied-off sleeveless plaid shirt. Like, she's open, she's simple, she's comfortable and trusting with her friends. Like, Husk is a complicated character in a lot of ways, but she's also very straightforward and earnest with the way she interacts with people. Like, there's not a lot of kind of manipulation or deviousness or managing there for her. Well, especially at this point, there's really just kind of one layer to her. I mean, depending on how her powers are working at the time, but I hear what you're saying. Oh, I did not mean to do that. Um, But yeah, and I'm not saying that she's she's a she's not an interesting character. She's just one who's who's very much subtext free she is what she appears to be on the surface yeah and especially contrasted with some of these other characters which is i think the strength of both this issue and the entire book and the x-men line in general like that's totally fine and we have monet wearing dress pants and dress shirt and a sweater vest over them she's formal she's fully covered she's very deliberate and that is her armor in the same way that jubilee's utter indifference is hers that said, despite that apparent indifference, it's Jubilee who suggests that what they should all do, given that it's a slumber party, is share stuff they've never told anyone. 
That almost seems like an aggressive act for her to be the one to suggest it, because that way she's not responding by being vulnerable, she, but she's the one initiating being vulnerable. It's almost like a preemptive strike. I would have read Jubilee as more likely to propose truth or dare than just truth, but... I like it, though. It's It works. And we certainly do see some evolution of the character. Like, you know, Jubilee's always going to be a little prickly, but... Also, I think she's starting to really invest in the idea of Generation X being real friends. She hasn't had real friends in a long time, as we're going to learn. So what's Jubilee's story? Well, so she was out, you know, shoplifting at the mall on rollerblades, like you do if you're Jubilee, with her friend Sinjen, that's C-Y-N-J-E-N, when her powers first manifested, um, when they were dodging past cops on their on their skates. And when she was cornered, she blew up everything in between her and the cops and panicked and ran away and shoved her hands into the nearby ocean, hoping hoping to just fix this and undo it and get things back to normal because her hands were just burning. It's, it's a short story. It's brief. But Jubilee is really upfront about her panic. But here's a weird thing, entirely unrelated to emotions— I was thinking, Sinjin, Sinjin, that rings a bell. Why does that ring a bell? Has she shown up before? Have we mentioned her? She has not, but in Wolverine number 72, there's a flashback to Jubilee's childhood, and we meet her friends Cynthia and Jennifer. Right, exactly. So what the hell? Did they, like, turn into a Steven Universe-style gem fusion so that they could rollerblade and shoplift better? Yes. I feel great about that. Uh... So anyway, what about Monet's story? Monet's story is definitely the most complicated of the lot, although initially it appears to be the simplest. She woke up one day and had her powers and flew out of her bed in her nightgown over her governess and out onto the quaint fairy tale town she lived in, where everyone marveled at how lovely she was and delighted at her abilities. And at that point in the story, Emplate appears at the window. Right. M-Plate is, as we learned somewhat recently, Monet's brother, but we were first introduced to him as a terrifying villain in the first issue of Gen X. He's sort of this big, hulking, spiky, gas-mask-wearing, zombie-looking guy, and he eats the genetic marrow from mutants, although we're Whatever the hell that is. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Uh, But he's a really scary character, and he's an awesome character, and here he's a pitiful character. Like, he accuses her of lying, and yes, obviously, this is just a story being made up. It's way too simple. It's way too positive. It's way too much of a fairy tale. And he also says, hey, she should stop lying to herself and her friends. She should free him, and they can eat the genetic marrow of everyone around them together, because she can see those delicious auras as well as he can. The whole family can. And this has something to do with how their mother died to protect them despite this fact— and something to do with the fact that M-Plate is trapped in this other dimension of pure psychic torture so that his sister wouldn't be. And we are just getting bits and pieces and bits and pieces. And it works. This is a slow burn, a slow reveal that I really like. Like, I'm curious about the whole story, but the fact that M is still a mystery and we're just chipping away at that mystery is satisfying, not frustrating. Yeah, and this is 24 issues, two years into the series. 
Because that's the thing. We've talked about this before. Generation X is an incredibly slow-moving comic. Like, a lot of the time, the characters are just hanging out, celebrating holidays, at a cookout, shopping, whatever. 90% of the time, they're celebrating holidays. That's kind of what they do. There's a lot of holidays, it's true. Chris Pacella loves drawing holiday stuff. Uh, or other artists, I guess, as well, come to think of it. And that's not a bad thing, but it does mean that the slow burn plots are, like, really slow burn. So it's interesting that Mplate mentions here that Monet has the same abilities. And I guess it's implied, based on what we know from later, that the other sisters also have the same abilities. Later on, Monet will, in fact, get a little more Mplate-y, and she will get those cool little mouth hands that he has, and she will start being a genetic marrow vampire, and, like, Sabretooth will keep her a secret. I think that was in the fourth? volume of uncanny x-men maybe the one that was basically them as more of an x-force like team but that's it for Mplate for now because when she refuses his suggestion these long white grasping arms and hands all close in on him and pull him down and down and wrap around him and wrap around him into this uneven sphere that just shrinks and turns itself inside out until it blips out of existence it is a hell of a visual it's really really creepy yeah, and like that weird, spooky, white hand dimension, like, we'll learn more about that as we go. Mplate, Mplate is a really interesting character, and most of that interest is visual, and I don't say that to denigrate it. Like, the visual portrayal of the way he's trapped and the way his powers work and the way everything about him works is just continually unsettling, and I love it. Yeah, he's weird as hell. Oh yeah, so weird, so great. Which brings us to the most wholesome and mundane of the origin stories, that being Husk's. Uh, yeah, so Husk really, really wanted to be a mutant. Her brother Sam was a mutant, he got to go travel and join a mutant team, and that was the coolest thing ever. And so she just kept trying everything she could think of to see what her power might be, and there's this little montage that is goddamn adorable. Of her doing stuff like jumping out of the hayloft to try to fly... You know, sitting in a bucket of ice water to try to regulate her body temperature, etc., etc. My favorite is when she's trying to figure out if she has telepathy. There's this panel of her clutching her head and scrunching up her face, doing her best Professor X or Jean Grey impersonation, while she's staring really hard at a confused-looking turtle. No, it's just... It's, it's inordinately charming. It's so great. Like, that is my... F- we don't do superlatives in our show, but if we were doing a favorite panel... Well, I would say this would be my favorite panel, but there's also a lot of good Chris Pacello coming up. This would be in the running for my favorite panel. Possibly favorite moment. Maybe that, yeah. Yeah, I think that. Good call. And so this just keeps up until she gets so frustrated and just begs God to make her a mutant or she's going to tear out of her skin. And that's what happens. She rips out of her skin because that's her power. And I love the way this is portrayed because it looks all gross. I mean, Husk has a gross power, but she is just beaming and her body language is just so ecstatic. She doesn't care about the specifics of her power. She just cares that she has one. And that's her. She's so open to whatever the world might throw at her, even the weird stuff. She just wants to experience it. She's just excited about it. She just wants to, like, use it for whatever opportunity it can be. Which is something I really like about her having such a close, at times confrontational, dynamic with Chamber. Because that is not the perspective he's taken. And that leaves Emma. Emma's parents sent her to an asylum, 
when she was young, when her powers were starting to manifest and they didn't know what was going on. She describes it as... An exclusive place where wealthy families sent their bulimic daughters or chronically depressed sons to sit in their cells and linger in a lithium haze. It's implied that for a while here she was sexually abused by the guards, at least until she controlled one of them telepathically into killing everyone between her and the outside. At which point... As I left, I never looked back. And I've never had to ask for anything twice in my entire life. So this is a big part of Emma's origin story, and it will be referenced again in other books. But interestingly, it doesn't come up in the Emma Frost series that the character had for a while that documented most of her past. That's just not covered there. That series, by the way, highly recommended. I think a lot of people skipped it because all the covers were just Emma looking like ultra, ultra, ultra sexualized. But really, it was just kind of a good YA coming-of-age story about an interesting character coming into her own. So Yeah, the cover choices on that series were baffling. They really, really were. Like, I know sex sells, but, but consider your audience, people. But se- when sex does not accurately reflect the content in any way, sex sells one issue, maybe. <laughs> right, exactly. But this is consistent. I mean, we know the Frosts have a habit of institutionalizing their troublesome kids, like... Christian Frost got institutionalized just because he was gay. Yeah. And so, yeah, all the women have shared these stories with each other and realized that, you know, most of them aren't very happy, except for M's, which I think they all realize is untrue. Well, and Pages. And Pages, but she still gets that none of them could be normal. As she says, How come we can't just all sing Christmas carols like the rest of the world? And Emma replies, Because... As we've learned tonight, again, we aren't like the rest of the world. And Jubilee asks, So then why is it up to us to fix the thing? (sighs) Just say Merry Christmas, Jubilee. Merry Christmas, Jubilee. Satisfied? That brings us to Generation X, number 25, Suffer the Children, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Al Vey and Scott Hanna, colored by Brad Van Cutta, lettered by Richard Sarkings, and Comicraft. And before we dive into it, I feel compelled to mention that this is a double-sized issue, of course, being a multiple of 25, with a wraparound cover, which is pretty sweet. It's Banshee creeping through these giant evil vines with his comatose students all around him and a very evil Emma behind him. It's, it's great. And it's Pacello, and I'm so happy he's back! Yes, yes, likewise. Especially given the story that he then draws. So, now that everyone's back at school from the holidays, everything has gone completely terrible. Black Tom Cassidy, who is all the plants in the Danger Grotto, has taken over the school and unleashed Mondo, who was apparently some kind of evil plant clone all along. Yeah, so, uh... You know, that kind of came out of nowhere. Mondo seems to think Banshee should have known, saying... Aren't you proud? Or didn't you realize, while you were learning about Mondo, Mondo was learning about you. How to stop you. How to kill you. No, Mondo, I did not realize that, in fact, at all, because there was literally zero foreshadowing about this, aside from, like, some ambiguous figure creeping in the bushes a couple times. This is weird. Yeah, well, half the time the creative team forgot that Mondo even existed. 
Yeah, he was barely ever in the book, and he didn't even come into the book until way later. Like, we got our formative team mostly, but Mondo was many, many issues later, and that was when he was in all of the original concept and promotional art. I remember this little Generation X advertising special Ashcan comic I got, and he was there right next to the other characters. And this is just so strange to me. It feels... It would feel more like a betrayal if the character had been in the book more, but it does feel very random. Like, I like all the Black Tom stuff in this issue. That totally works, I think. But the Mondo thing does not feel earned to me. What about you? I'm on the same page as you there. It doesn't feel at all earned. And if that was the only reason he was there, it feels pointless. It it feels almost more like writing out a character who had become inconvenient or who, again, everyone had kept forgetting, although I know it was planned based on the alternate scenes we've seen of actual Mondo. Yeah, yeah. So, strange stuff, but drawn fucking beautifully. Jay, that first two-page spread with this gigantic Mondo merged with vines and branches and mushrooms and leaves looking like some kind of a fucking, like, hulking plant zombie holding Sean in place. Like, the foliage is all overlapping and blocking the other panels just to show how overwhelming he is. It's so cool looking! Yeah, Bacello has a lot of fun with playing it with and breaking panel borders in general, and in this whole issue, the way he uses that to emphasize really more Black Tom's overwhelming omnipresence is very, very cool. 100%, yeah. And, like, the first glimpse we get of the school itself, which is overgrown, is similarly impressive. We talked about how the recent Shi'ar arc we covered of Uncanny X-Men didn't really sell the scale of the threat, and everything in this issue does, and so much of that is visual more than anything else. So Tom's general angle on this, the reason he's been stalking the school, the reason that he is now imprisoning its its members is that he's taking over because Emma and Sean can't be trusted to raise kids, and also as revenge for Sean taking Teresa from him. And we should point out here, this is not the Black Tom in the natty purple and red outfit with his shillelagh that we saw back in the first Cassidy Keep arc with all the leprechauns in X-Men. Black Tom's been through a lot, mostly in a couple of Deadpool miniseries, which we haven't covered, but the short version is... He's plants now. Yeah, he's he's a plant guy now. Um, he is composed of plant matter, kind of more than human matter, and a lot of his plant his powers are based on that. And um, he's also not as uh, stable as once he was, mentally. So, at least initially, he appears to have most of the Generation kids captured underground. Now, this is going to turn out to be false, but it's the pretense that we're working under for most of the issue. Uh, he even pretends to kill one real quick, but yeah, it turns out it's just a plant fake full of, like, grubs or maggots or something. It's it's super gross. Black Tom himself, though, looks so cool. There are so many good visuals here, but this first visual of him as just this shadowed figure with all these spiky vines and skulls spilling out from under him like mist, and mostly we can just see his shiny shirt buckles and his giant legion-like hair outside of the shadow. He looks like if the devil was mostly composed of evil plants instead of being themed around fire and brimstone. Also, he's got this own kind of whimsical-looking fairy font, uh, but some of the words are highlighted in blue, and some of them are highlighted in red, and it's not just the word house and then stuff about the Minotaur, respectively. Okay, two people are going to get that joke. Carry on. I definitely wasn't one of them. I'll explain it to you after. So Black Tom offers Sean a deal. He will let the kids go if Sean kills Emma. Uh, Sean is not down with this, but... Black Tom manages to to somehow mentally control Emma into attacking him. How does how does Tom do this? 
Okay, so it's not directly stated, but what we see at one point is Emma Frost with this sort of rictus-like grin on her face, looking very strained, and then behind her is this super-shadowed, barely visible, plant-like version of Black Tom, and he's got all of his fingers kind of shoved into the top of her skull like needles, and I guess that's how he's controlling her. I don't know how it works, but it is super creepy and cool. So, mind-controlled Emma is about to kill Sean, but is able to get enough control back to telepathically control him into at least apparently killing her. And then Penance, who Black Tom had somehow overlooked completely, shows up and using her razor-sharp everything, kills Black Tom. It's one of those anime things where, like, somebody will slash their sword through something, and then there's a pause— and then the thing just slides into two pieces, except a little gorier. But, um, yes, it is quite thorough. I still don't get how it actually kills Black Tom, though, because we've seen him survive complete immolation. Like, we've, we've, he's, he's effectively a, a ribosomal system. Like, the, this shouldn't kill him. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's cumulative damage, because we'll cover it momentarily, but like you mentioned, he was immolated before this, and he's taken a lot of other beatings as well, but I agree, it doesn't make sense, and certainly Black Tom will be back. Like, we haven't seen the last of him. Well, these days we haven't seen the last of anybody. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good point. So, while Emma, Sean, and a bunch of fake versions of their students were fighting Black Tom, what's everyone else been up to? Because we've got a bunch of folks unaccounted for. We've got, um, I mean, the actual kids, and we've got, of course, the, the, uh, Moppets in the biosphere. So actually, let's start with the Moppets. Yeah, so like we mentioned, Howard the Duck is here along with his kind of girlfriend Beverly uh, visiting the kids. And he's hanging out with the Moppets, with Artie and Leech and Franklin Richards and the alien Tana Nile. And they get attacked also. Uh, and in fact, uh, Howard the Duck manages to set Black Tom very thoroughly on fire, leaving just this wooden twig and root covered skeleton. It's really awesome. This scene also does give us some uh, pretty creepy Black Tomage. To me, this has always been the fun part. Sure, there's the thrill of battle, the chase, the blood, but there's nothing quite as exciting as the thrill a body gets from terrorizing wee ones and women. And now. Ducks. After Howard sets Black Tom on fire, Man-Thing shows up and portals them all out of there um, and into the Daydreamers miniseries. And there's a massive fucking plot hole here, which is that Beverly is with them in the biosphere, but she's not with them in Daydreamers. I have no idea. My Howard the Duck continuity skills are um, limited. I mean, she shows up later, so I guess she's fine, but yeah, that's weird. That's a whole thing. So... The Moppets are taken care of. Um, let's see. Jubilee is off by herself. She is running away in the snow, and she is found by Bastion, who rescues her from Mondo by killing him, and then puts her to sleep Dark City style by just waving his hand in front of her face and going, sleep. Yeah, this is, in fact, this version of Mondo's death. Bastion has some kind of anti-mutant gun that very thoroughly kills Mondo. That's why he's not in the rest of the issue. And this is a brief scene. But in Uncanny X-Men number 343, which we already covered, that was one of those Shi'ar issues, there was a little cutaway where Bastion delivers Jubilee's unconscious form to his assistant Harper for processing and then for delivery to his lab, and that's actually going to lead to a pretty central aspect of the plot in Operation Zero Tolerance, Jubilee as a captive. We won't 
meet the real Mondo until Generation X number 60, at which point he's going to have to remind the team that he has no idea who they are because they've never actually met. Oh, that's that's real awkward and also sad. Genuinely sad. Uh, Gateway, who also gets forgotten pretty regularly but who's been living on campus, fucks off to somewhere else. And we do get a bit of insight about him, because before Penance goes off to save everybody and seemingly kill Black Tom, we learn from the captions that the reason that he said the word Penance when he dropped her off at the school was because he was hoping that she would be his penance. He was hoping to even out some of the bad things he's done working for bad guys, specifically portaling some bad dudes in that ended up killing Emma's first class, the Hellions. And as for the rest of the team, well, they are now several thousand miles away, somewhere at sea, floating in the remains of a big bubble of plant matter. And that's where the issue leaves them. And... For the first time in a long time, big things are happening in Generation X, and I gotta say, I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I kinda missed them. <laughs> right? I mean, the slow character-based issues are good, but like, boy howdy, there were a lot of them. Whole lot, whole lot of conversations, whole lot of holidays. Speaking of conversations, you, our listeners, would like to have them and have questions. Jeff C. asks on our blog... I do enjoy the interconnectivity of the Core X titles when they're in sync. If I recall, issue 342 has an interlude that sets up the next few issues of the adjectiveless title, featuring the members of the team that did not end up in space. I didn't hear you guys cover that page during the episode. I was wondering if it was intentionally skipped, or if perhaps whatever source you were rereading these issues from omitted that page. So we do reread everything uh, very de deliberately, and what we cover... Um, depends a lot on the episode and on the scene. So sometimes we'll include scenes like that in the issues in which they appear, for example, if they're longer scenes or make up a substantial part of the comic or if they're integral to the pacing of the issue. More often, if those scenes tie to a later story, we'll basically put them on, the, put them on hold and cover them with the later material that they tie more directly to. Uh, yeah, we actually just did that with that little Bastion Jubilee scene. We've done that a bunch, but that's a really hard thing to search for on our old outlines, so uh, I don't remember where. But I know we've done it a bunch. Yeah, we, we do it a fair lot. Sometimes we comment on it when we're doing it, sometimes we don't. But in general, um, that's, that's, gonna be, that's an example of, of grouping things by story rather than by issue. We'll also occasionally just skip those bits if they're not really doing much, if they're not you know, giving us useful information, propelling a plot line, or we don't particularly find them interesting. And in the case of the page that you mentioned, Jeff C., this would actually, for us, fall into that category. Like, it's fun, but it's also very brief, and there's not unique information in there. Like, it's Cannonball uh, letting the other X-Men know, Wolverine and Phoenix and Cyclops, what happened, and Wolverine getting real mad, both that Cannonball lost the other X-Men and that the Shi'ar are, are jerks. And that's kind of the whole thing right there. So it's a cool page. It's fun seeing those characters. But the fact is, it's not our goal to just do a granular beat-by-beat -beat recap of these comics. Yes, recapping is a big part of what we do, but we, would, we don't want it to be the only thing we do. We don't want to focus on that to the exclusion of, like, discussion. And by by sorting things by story, that, you know, that means omitting the stuff that's not part of the story that doesn't feel relevant. Elliot emailed us to ask, I was wondering if Leech has showed up at all in the Krakoan era. I've read a bunch of new lines, and I haven't seen him or heard other characters talk about him. 
I was wondering if this was true and then got to thinking. If Krakoa itself is a mutant, would Leech be capable of, capable of depowering the whole island? Maybe that's why we haven't seen him. So, yeah, Elliot, you're totally right. We ha- The last time we actually saw Leech on page was back in 2020 in Fantastic Four, Volume 6, Number 26, which was when the Future Foundation group that he'd been a part of for a long time sort of split up. But we do know that he's on Krakoa. I'm so pleased I was able to find this. In 2020's Cable Volume 4, Number 1, we see the results of the various tournaments that Silver Samurai has been running, these different like one-on-one training combat sessions. And we see that at one point, Leech and Artie had a training session with each other, and Leech won. So, uh, well done, Leech. Artie, you'll get him next time. As far as your other question about whether Leech could depower Krakoa, Leech has gotten way, way better at pulling his depowering field in tighter over the years. He can pretty much control it at this point, but even if he couldn't, its maximum range is about 10 yards or so. Yeah, so he could depower, you know, a fragment of Krakoa, but there's a whole lot of Krakoa, so, like, it would probably be fine. So, I think we're good. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear from the angry Clarmontian narrator. Spencer, at least you'll always know that you did your best. Unfortunately, you'll also know just how tragically, inescapably insufficient that best was. I mean, you're making me appreciate James Marr here, and that's saying something. And the mic now goes to Black Tom Cassidy. If Black Tom loves one thing, tis causing terror and screams amid the wicked and the weak. If Black Tom loves two things, tis that first item, and speaking in a questionable Irish pseudo-brogue. And if Black Tom's love were to extend to three things, why that third would be plantin'. Do you see what I did there? Botanical spies amid me enemies. Sean S., I'll embed you within me hated brother Sean's school so you can gain his trust. After all, you have the same first name, and what could be more trustworthy? But, as ye ingratiate yourself amid the other wee ones, you'll really be gathering the secrets and weaknesses of brother Sean and his students until... BAM! Plant attack! And if that's nay enough, perhaps a second spy, just in case. That's right, Shannon. I'll have you join the school as well. Still with a name similar enough to Sean's for him to trust ye, but different enough to avoid that former Garda's suspicion. You'll seem the most normal of blokes, but then... Another plant attack! And right as they're still dealing with the first. Also, Black Tom would be remiss if he didn't remember to add... Shillelagh! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes and shillelaghs come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform, because it really helps. Next week, the government loses its grip on its premier mutant poster, kids. 
as X-Factor goes underground. 